You know, it was uh, 1992, March, on the campus of Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky, that the chapel service was coming to a close. The president stood at the lectern, and he was about to dismiss the students until one young man walked up on the platform, and he says, may I please say something? The president backs away and gives the young man the microphone, and the young man begins to confess his sin to the entire school. He talks about how he's been stealing from the bookstore, how he's been lying, and how he has been gossiping about a lot of his classmates, and he asks for their forgiveness. The whole school is stunned by this moment. Another young man walks up onto the stage and does the same thing. He begins confessing his sin and asking the school for forgiveness. And then another young lady, and then another young man, and all of a sudden, this chapel service turned into a prayer gathering. And this prayer gathering lasted for weeks. It became known as a revival of Asbury College of 1992. People from all over the nation came to Wilmore, Kentucky, this small suburb of Lexington, to see what was happening. And it was there in that place where they saw college students' lives being transformed by the gospel. And students were humbling themselves, confessing sin, breaking out into groups in which they're praying together. Many of them surrendering to the ministry. Many of them surrendering to the call to go and share the gospel. God raised up evangelists and these worship leaders and pastors from this one gathering. And what happened at Asbury College in 1992 is a snapshot of what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're walking through the, um, not the gospel of Acts, excuse me, the book of Acts together as a faith family in a sermon series called Sent. We see throughout the book of Acts where God has sent his son to come and pay for our sins at the cross. That God sent his spirit to come and be with his people. We see this in Acts chapter 2 where the spirit falls on the people. They turn from sin and trust in Christ and 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus. We're going to see where Jesus uh, commissions his disciples. He sent them out in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the the ends of the earth, that he is a sending God, and the Lord is sending you to the nations. The question is not whether or not you are called to work in the ministry. The question is where and how. All of us are called as followers of Jesus to be in the ministry. All of us are called to take this gospel to the nations and our neighbors. The question is just where. And one of the things we want to do as a church is to continue to equip you so that you might impact your world for Jesus. We've seen this early church that is established here in Acts chapter 2. An incredible movement of the Spirit where we see God gathering these new believers and forming them together. And he is making a gospel-shaped community. These are new Christ followers who are modeling for us what the local church is supposed to look like. We're taking five weeks to look at these five marks of a gospel-shaped community. The first is biblical teaching. The second is reverent worshiping. The third is sacrificial living. The fourth is generous giving. And the fifth is gospel sharing. 
And so over the course of these five weeks, we're going to be looking at these five marks that we see here in Acts chapter 2. Last week, we saw where the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They would sit at the apostles' feet and they would sit and soak the word. They would bask in the teaching as they began to unpack the scriptures. As these 12 men who had been with Jesus are bringing God's word to bear upon the people, they would listen and they would gather and they would soak in what was being taught. We talked about for us as a faith family that we are a people of the book, right? That as a faith family, I mean, we're people who love and submit to the word of God. That we treasure his word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. We talked about how we're to be a people who study the word. We obey the word. We meditate on the word. We memorize the word and we teach the word. Well, this morning we're going to look at the second characteristic of the early church, which is reverent worshiping. And we're going to see it here in the text. And so we're going to be reading in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. And as we read this, I want to remind you that over the course of the next five weeks, we are memorizing this passage together as a faith family, Acts 2, 42 through 47. I met with my men's group this week and I was quoting this passage from memory. I nailed verse 42 and totally botched verse 43, okay? So I'm working through it with you. Hopefully I'll have it at least through verse 43 by Wednesday morning. Acts 2, beginning with verse 42, the scripture says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. In verse 43, we see that everyone was filled with awe. That word for awe is where we get the word for phobia. There's this fear this holy terror that has come upon God's people. That God's presence among the people was so strong that the people were humbled and overwhelmed. Knowing that God is working in his presence, it rests heavy upon the people. It produced this holy fear. It then compelled them towards this reverent worship. There's this supernatural work of God that he's doing that's creating this just sense of awe. There's a sense in which we think of Exodus chapter 3, when at the burning bush, Moses, he takes his sandals off, and then once he realizes he's talking to Yahweh, the scripture says that he put his face down. You go to Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel has a vision of the Lord, and what does he do? He puts his head down. In Isaiah chapter 6, as Isaiah sees the throne room of God and he encounters the holy, holy, holy seated on his throne, what does he do? He's humbled. My eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. When we get to Matthew 17, we see where Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus takes on a temporary glorified body and it begins to, when the Father speaks a blessing over his Son, they phase plant on the grounds. There's a sense in which when you come into the presence of God, you are humbled. There is fear. 
There's a holy terror that you are encountering the living God. That the one who spoke the cosmos into existence is now the one who is drawing near to you in this moment. Now let's make no mistake, God is everywhere. He is omnipresent, okay? Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching good and evil. Jeremiah 23, can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? God is everywhere, and yet what we see in Acts 2 is that there are places and people and moments in which God shows up in a special, powerful way. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the entire earth, seeking to strengthen the hearts of those who are fully committed to him. That we see that there are specific times and places and moments in which God has this powerful presence he brings to bear upon his people. Well, here in Jerusalem, here are a people whose hearts have been radically transformed by the gospel. They've put their faith in Christ. They've been baptized. They're now assembling together as a church. And the Holy Spirit is working in a powerful way among them. And this creates this reverent awe. This holy terror of, oh my goodness, God is here. And he is working. And he is moving. The people, they're fulfilling here in this moment what Jesus said would happen in John chapter 4. In which he's, uh, he said that the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. We see this passion for Jesus ever increasing in the hearts of the early church. There's a spirit, but then there's also truth. There are people of the book. They want the truth of God's word to be brought to bear upon their lives, their lives to guide them so that they might know how they might submit and follow and honor the Lord in all of their lives. You see, for them, they wanted worship not just to be this moment in which they gather and sing and listen to the word, but indeed the worship is every part of their life. Indeed, y'all, your worship is not constrained to Sunday morning, right? Man, worship is all of your life. It's how you teach your class. It's how you study. It's how you play on the ball field. It's how you shepherd your children. It's worship. You are giving glory and honor to the Lord in all of your life. You you can't contain God to a box and say, you can have my Sunday morning as if you're just giving him a tip. God wants the whole thing. He wants all of your life. This is what Paul's driving home in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing, for this is your spiritual act of worship. That your worship is you saying, God, you can have all of me. I'm not going to try and put you in a box and say you can only have certain parts, but God, I'm going to submit and follow all of my life to you. All of my life is going to be worship. I want to show the world around me that Jesus, you're the most important thing to me. And I'm going to glorify you with the words that I say, with the actions that I do, and the attitudes of my heart. Well, for these first century Acts 2 Christ followers, they're devoting themselves to Jesus, his mission, and to one another. And God's powerful presence is on the church, and it's evident. What about today? Does God do something like in Acts 2 today? And my argument is yes. And we can learn it from right here in the text. 
What does this worship look like? This reverent, awe-inspiring presence and power of God. What does this look like? Well, it looks like this, number one. It's God's people loving one another. They're devoted to, look at verse 42, to the fellowship. The word for fellowship, it's, it's koinonia. It's, they have everything in common. It's a true partnership. It's closeness. It's friendship among believers. It's this kind of intimacy that flows out of fellowship, union, and relationship with Jesus. Paul says it like this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. He says, God is faithful, and you were called by him into koinonia, into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, just as you have now been called into a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, out of the overflow of that relationship with him, it then has horizontal implications in which it, it creates this culture of community, of humility and love for neighbor and those especially who belong to the fellowship. We're going to unpack this more next week as we look at the early church living with interdependence upon one another and they share everything and they sell their things to take care of one another. We'll unpack that more. But what we see even here is that they're devoted to the fellowship. They're committed to one another. There's a sense in which for the early church, you are your brother's keeper. And there's there's true relationship and unity within the early church. So we'll look at this more next week on Mother's Day, which by the way, y'all, men, take notes, Mother's Day next week. But we're going to look at what it means to love one another more in the days ahead. But let's not miss the fellowship that's taking place here. The second thing we see here in the text is not just loving one another, but reverent worship looks like God's people remembering the gospel. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. That's a reference to the Lord's Supper. The, the breaking of the bread was an opportunity to remember what Christ had done for them in the gospel. You see, for these Jewish converts, they're being taught by the apostles to make this connection between the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper. And so through the breaking of bread, it's pointing to the broken body of Jesus at the cross. At the cup, it's pointing to the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of sins for those who trust in Christ. And when they take this meal, they're being reminded of what the Lord has done for them in the gospel. You see, to the early church, the gospel was precious. Grabbing hold of the reality that all of their sins were paid for. That they've been set free from the bondage of the law of the Old Testament. That all of these rules and regulations, that all of these Pharisees just kept heaping on them. They were set free from it. Oh, the liberation. I don't have to play religion anymore. I don't have to put on a face anymore. I don't have to act a certain way to make people like me. I just have to be faithful to Jesus. And he begins to change my heart. I've been set free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. This changes everything. And the gospel was precious. Question, is the gospel precious to you? When was the last time you wept over what Christ has done for you through the cross? 
do you find yourself humbled by the reality of what Jesus went through for you? Do you find yourself as a maturing believer growing more in love with Jesus? If you find that your heart is becoming calloused, if you find that you're no longer emotional thinking about what Jesus has done for you, then it's time right now, Lord, would you examine my heart? Or I've misplaced priorities. I've allowed other things to take the place. It's, it's an old youth ministry picture illustration, but it's so good. It's a lot of times you pull out a chair and you say, everybody has a throne, a chair of their heart. The question is, who's sitting on the chair of your heart? And sometimes we'll put sports or family or job or money or all of those things on the chair and Jesus is over here off to the side. And the invitation is, it's time to get those things off the throne and put Jesus on his rightful place. Question, who's sitting on the throne of your heart? Are you falling more in love with Jesus? You see, for the early church, they were remembering the gospel through the Lord's Supper, and it was precious. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Man, eating this feast was a celebration of what Christ has done, that he has set me free. When we take the Lord's Supper together as a faith family, it's a time of celebration for me. It's one of the most emotional parts as a pastor in which I stand up here and have a very awesome perspective to see the faces of you and seeing you remember Jesus and what he's done for us in the gospel. Man, this is what the early church is doing. They're rallying around the work of Jesus. So reverent worship looks like remembering the gospel. But then thirdly, reverent worship looks like God's people praying regularly and intensely. We see there in the text, verse 42, they devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer was a part of the culture that marked the early church. Whether it was in formal prayer gatherings or just in these spontaneous moments where they would say, let's pray, and they would begin to pray it's, it's regular and it's intense. This, this prayer, it saturated the culture of the church. My, my desire is to see prayer become such a part of the fabric of who we are, the DNA for us as a church. Then you're in the atrium and you, you're talking with someone, they're sharing a burden. You say, hey, man, we're going to pray right now for that. That you're in the hallways and you pass people and you say, hey, can we take time to pray together over this? Or you're in your small group saying, hey guys, let, let, let's take some time and let's get before the Lord and let's pray for one another. And our text message threads that we have going all across the church is that it's, hey, no, it's not just I'm praying for you, although I am. It's I'm stopping what I'm doing right now and I'm praying. There are times in me and Christy's lives in which the Lord has put people in which we said, hey, I'm gonna ask you, when I send you this message, I'm gonna ask you just to stop and pray. And they're like, I'm on it. I'm stopping and praying. I've got a, a group of seven deacons who, who pray for me regularly, and I will send them these text message threads saying, guys, here's a big thing happening in my life. I need you to pray for this specifically. It's part of the culture of who we are. This is what's happening in the early church. We see in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we see the apostles and the women who followed Jesus continually united in prayer. In Acts chapter 3, we see Peter and John going to the temple for afternoon prayer time. In Acts 4, the church prayed with gratitude when Peter and John were released from prison. In Acts 6, the apostles recommit themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. In Acts 7, as Stephen is being stoned to death, he 
prays in Acts 8. Peter and John, they prayed for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit in Acts 9. Peter prayed for Tabitha to come back to life in Acts 10. Cornelius was praying and God sent Peter to preach the gospel to him in Acts 11. Peter prayed and the Lord revealed his plan to save the Gentiles in Acts 12. Peter was imprisoned and the church prayed for his deliverance in Acts 13. The church fasted, laid hands on Paul and Barnabas. They prayed for them and then sent them out in Acts 14. After planting churches, Paul and Barnabas appointed pastors and prayed over them in Acts 16. Paul and Barnabas are in prison, singing hymns and praying, and an earthquake strikes the prison and it begins to shake. In Acts 20, Paul kneeled with the Ephesian pastors and prayed for them. In Acts 21, Paul kneeled and prayed with the believers on the coast of Tyre. In Acts 22, Paul's in the temple and he's in Jerusalem and he's praying. In Acts 27, Paul prayed in the middle of a tempest, right in the middle of a shipwreck. In Acts 28, we see Paul prayed for the the sick father of Publius, that he would be saved in the island of Malta. You see, prayer is the natural response of the believer. We are a people who pray. We regularly, intensely come to the Lord and say, God, I've got to have you. And Lord, if you don't show up, this all falls apart. Man, what a a great prayer you bring before the Lord saying, God, I've got to have you and watch him work. Watch him move. One of the prayers I pray regularly is, God, I can't do this. And he's like, that's exactly where I want you. Where you desperately need me. That's where he displays his power. You and I are in danger of self-sufficiency. We can easily say with our lives, I got this. You see, prayerlessness is practical atheism. When you and I do not regularly, humbly get low before God and seek his face in prayer, it's as if we're acting like he doesn't even exist. You see, prayer is part of what it means to be a believer. It's as natural as breathing. You may be thinking, man, I'm, I'm not good at it. I'm not, I'm not good at praying. Can I let you on a secret? Nobody really is. And in fact, I have found this. The more I pray, the better I get at it. <laughs> There's no shortcut. It's not like all of a sudden you get good at something. It's just like sports or teaching or sales. If you want to get good at it, you have to practice over and over and over. And the more you pray, the better you get. And you're thinking, well, man, I just, ah, where do I begin? And this is where it begins. You begin by getting alone with the Lord and just saying, God, I'm not good at this. But would you help me? And you begin a conversation in which you're speaking to the Lord. You're bringing your burdens upon him. He's not looking for flowery language. You don't need a big vocabulary. Speak from the heart. You just tell him, God, this is what's happening in my heart and life. And here's what I'm asking. Would you work in these ways? But not my will. Your will be done. And here's what I found. When you begin to take the word and you open it, and you begin to pray the scriptures, God begins to move in some powerful ways through your prayers. When was the last time you asked for something and God answered it? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, man, I'm, I can't remember. Here's the thing, y'all. Life is too short to pray weak prayers. Let's be bold. 
We're commanded in Hebrews to come boldly into the throne of grace where we can find help in our time of need. That you have access to the king. I I was thinking about this recently and someone said it a lot better than I did is that no one wakes up a king from his sleep unless you're his child. You can go to the king who neither sleeps nor slumbers, but he invites you to come before him in prayer. How's your prayer life? Is it tepid? Average? Well, how, where do I begin? It begins with prayer. Saying, God, I can't do this, but I'm going to begin right here. I want to get better. I want to be more effective. I want to be just like what's happening here in Acts 2, is where prayer becomes what helps the believers persevere in the midst of trial. And for the early church, they devoted themselves to prayer. I would encourage you to surround yourself with with other mature believers. One of my favorite things to do is to listen to senior adults pray. I've got so much to learn from them. And to hear them just talk to the Lord and to hear how there's just this intimacy in that relationship. It's precious. It's what's happening here in the text. And all of this is a component of prayer. Fourth and finally, it's this. Reverent worship looks like God's people gathering together. In verse 46, it says the other church was devoted to meeting together in the temple. The people were committed to meeting together, to to gathering. Now, the, the temple complex is ginormous. Okay, Kenneth, great word. Okay, what in the world? Okay, the temple complex, if you can imagine about the size of about 27 football fields. It's huge, complex. Some, some estimate that you can fit at least a half a million people there in that area. It's ginormous space. And in here, the church would gather for prayer, for hearing the apostles' teaching. They were gathering regularly. It was a part of the culture of what they did is they would regularly come together to, to build that relationship. And we touched on this last week is that God did not make you to live in isolation. The pandemic taught us that, right? That nobody was made to live alone without meaningful relationships. He made you for community. And as a Christ follower, hear me on this, you need the church and the church needs you. You see, God has gifted you with spiritual gifts that no one else has. And when you're not using those gifts to serve the church, the church is being hurt. The church is lacking. The Lord has seen fit to invite you and I and to use our gifts to bless his people, to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. And it's using these gifts to serve and care For others, your soul needs the local church. Jesus died for his church. He loves the church. And when someone starts talking bad about the church, I warn them, be careful. You're talking about the bride of Christ. And here's the thing. If you talk bad about my wife, it doesn't go well. How do you think Jesus feels when someone talks about his wife? 
You see, Jesus loves his church. As imperfect and messed up as all of us are, Jesus still loves his church. He still provides for his church. He still protects his church. He's still working in his church and through his church. He's washing her with the word, Ephesians 5, so that he might present her to himself perfect, pure, and blameless on the last day. And so I want to challenge you to get connected to the local church. That when we gather on Sunday mornings, it's not come watch. It's, man, I'm going to participate. I'm going to be involved. I'm going to engage. And y'all, it's hard work. It's heart work. It takes difficulty and inconvenience. And here's what I've also found. Something I learned through the pandemic is as grateful as I am for technology it cannot replace being in the room. And while I'm so grateful for all of these resources to take the gospel and to get it out to the nations, there's something about gathering here. When you're listening to a single mom sing about the resurrection with tears in her eyes, when you see the widow who's praying with desperation for God to bring her comfort, when you're seeing senior saints who are holding hands and pointing to Jesus, when you lock arms with other believers who look nothing like you, who are in a totally different economic bracket than you, but it doesn't matter because Jesus bonds us together. That's the local church. And for my graduating seniors, you need the church. Don't you dare disengage. The church needs you and you need the church. It's essential for your perseverance in the gospel. In fact, this was not a new problem of people disengaging from the church. It goes all the way back to the first century. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Maybe for you as a family, you, you, lately it's just been once a month, once every six weeks you come. Man, I say to you, can you make it an every week commitment? And say, guys, we gotta be there because it's good for my soul, it's good for you and we've gotta persevere in the gospel. And as persecution is about to rise up against the early church, they're gonna need each other. They're gonna say, we've got to have each other or all of this is gonna fall apart. And Satan is like a roaring lion seeking to devour your faith for breakfast. He wants to take you down. He wants to see you walk away from Jesus. And when you disengage from the church, you are making yourself like an antelope out in the middle of nowhere with no protection. But when you're in the local church, you're inviting people who will pray for you, who will protect you, who will encourage you, people who have your back and say, man, I got you here. So when you find your faith waning, when you have doubts and struggles, you invite others in through the local church and say, man, would you join with me? Help me endure. We've got to get through this. It's having people in your life who will tell you the truth. People who tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. People who will call you out. You've got blind spots, y'all. Do you know that? And one of God's good gifts is to have the local church of people who love you enough to tell you the truth and say, hey man, I, I see some, some blind spots here. And can I say, first among sinners here in the church, I've got a lot of blind spots, a ton. I need a lot of work and grace. But I'm thankful for a local church in which you have freedom to call them out. Why? Because I want to become more like Jesus. I want to finish this life more passionate for Jesus than when I began. 
I want to be picking up the pace as I see the finish tape off in the distance. So whether the Lord gives us another week or another 10 years, that we're still running hard after Christ. You need the church to finish well. So Kenneth, what's the big picture of what you're calling us to? It's your impact point, and it's this. Offer your entire life as worship unto God. Would you say, God, I want to give you all of my life? July of 2003, I was sitting there in the chapel at Asbury College. I was a huddle leader for a summer camp for Fellowship of Christian Athletes in the same room where that 1992 revival took place. And that week, God got a hold of my heart and life. The Scottish believe that there are some places on earth that rise up higher than others where God comes to meet with his people. And for me, it's that chapel. It's in that room in which God was humbling me and he got a hold of my life. And it was there that I threw my hands up and I said, God, I'm surrendering my life completely to you. Whatever you want to do with me, I'm yours. It was there that the Lord began stirring my heart with a call to the ministry. What about you? Have you thrown your hands up and said, God, I'm offering all of my life to you. As an act of worship, you can have all of me. I'm yours. All for the sake of the fame and the worship of King Jesus. Jesus.